Well, hello, church. If you would open to Genesis, uh, we're going to read in chapter 1, just verse 27, and we're going to cover a lot of Genesis 2 and 3, but I just want us to read verse 27 to start us. This is God's Word. So God created man in His own image. and the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Father, we pray that we could learn today at the feet of Your Word. Lord, You are the Incarnate One. The Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, Lord, you said when you were on this word, uh, on this earth, Lord, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we pray that we would hear all that accords with your word as words from your mouth, and that they would hold absolute authority and sway in our lives, and that we would. Be helped by You, Lord, to conform our lives to what Your Word says. Because we believe Your Word is good. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Your Son. Amen. We are in week four of this uh, series on marriage. And we're going to shift now into uh, gender roles and marriage. We've said a little bit about this, but we're going to... Now, for the next three weeks, uh, look at the, the gender roles in marriage. And I want to uh, avoid what usually happens when talking about gender roles in marriage. And what I've seen happen, what I've done myself, is I try to teach on uh, a husband's role, or you try to teach on a wife's role, and you end up just uh, filling the whole sermon with all the qualifiers and nuances. Here's what a husband isn't, and here's what a wife isn't, and here's the abuses and the confusion surrounding these things, and you end up walking away uh, maybe more confused. Uh, And so what I want to do is this week look at Genesis 3 and see uh, the abuses and the problems surrounding the gender roles. And then I want to come back uh, next week and the following week and look at what is a husband biblically, what is a wife uh, biblically, and hopefully... Uh, those will land with a lot more clarity. Um, one of the first things that you're supposed to do when any doing any type of public speaking, and it applies to preaching as well, is they say, know your audience. Before you stand up to say something, know who you're speaking to. And, um, and when I come at this issue of gender roles in marriage, I'm aware that I'm not speaking to the lost world this morning. Uh, I'm not going to argue for these roles as if you've never heard these things or if if you hate these things. I I believe that I'm speaking to a church uh, that loves the Word of God, that submits to the Word of God in everything that it says. And I know wives here, many of you, you, you deeply want to be a godly wife. And husbands who deeply want to be godly husbands. And so I'm assuming that about you and about the, uh, those I'm speaking to, that you don't need to be convinced that men and women are different. Certainly not biologically, but not biblically either. 
Um, I, I, I'm just going to assume that uh, we all believe what I just read, that God created man and woman, and there is man and woman. And we amen that and fully believe that. And then when we read our Bibles past Genesis and we get into, say, Leviticus, it's interesting when you get into genders in Leviticus because you see even the sacrificial system is gendered. It says, offer a male goat. Offer a male without blemish, a, a ram or a lamb. Why, why maleness? Why not just a female goat? Why, not, why does it just say a goat? And it doesn't matter which one it is. Why a male? Well, because even in the sacrificial system of the law, gender matters. And how much more in marriage? And I mean, coming out of two weeks, we spent two weeks, the last two weeks, on Christ and the church. That marriage is about displaying the glory of Christ and the church. One, the husband being like Christ, the wife being like the church. How could we argue against that there's distinctness in genders after that? Certainly it's a good thing. Certainly it's a biblical thing to say a husband is different than a wife and a wife is different uh, than a husband and that these are glorious things. But, but here, just because we agree with all of that doesn't mean that we understand what it looks like for a husband to be a biblical husband or a wife to be a biblical wife. Just because we believe the Bible speaks to that. It doesn't mean we practically understand how to live that out. Um, and, and it certainly doesn't mean that we are ready to rejoice in God's design for husbands and wives. Uh, and, and so that's my two hopes for the next two or three weeks, is to not only help us understand the role distinctions between husbands and wives, but to rejoice in them. To be able to say, God has spoken to these matters, and it's good. And I'm fully on board with what he said. So here's how we'll come at it today. Uh, Genesis 2 uh, lays out uh, the gender roles before the fall, that is before sin. Then Genesis 3, the gender roles after the fall, after sin. And we'll just break it in those two categories. And I'm going to just walk through Genesis 2 and 3 today and just read a good, a good portion of this and then pause, say some things, and then read some more. Um, when I, let me say one thing real quick before I uh, put us in Genesis 2. When I say gender, maybe some of you are wondering why I'm not saying sexes. And I'm using the word gender. It's not because I think gender is a, a, a social construct. I don't believe gender is a social construct. I'm, not, I'm just not using the word sexes because to many people that sounds just like biological differences. And gender, uh, for many people is broader, and it reaches into marriage, it reaches into the church, it reaches into culture, it's, it's bigger than just biological. So, so hear me uh, saying that. And, and maybe the most important thing I could say at, at the front end of this is that maleness and femaleness, in God's eyes, is not arbitrary. Many Christians, I think, actually believe that maleness and femaleness is arbitrary. That, that here, here's what I mean by that, that men and women are different, but they're only different in marriage, and they're only different in how they serve in the church. Other than that, they're basically the same, and, and biologically they're different. But in every other area, they're the same. 
And, and so it seems like God just made two people, made them different, but then said, only in marriage and only in the church, I want you to act differently. But in any other area, you know, do, do what you want to do. And it seems arbitrary to read a lot of the things that God says in Scripture to men and women. And what I want to argue is that God is not random or uh, has no point or purpose behind what He's done. He is, he is rooting everything He's saying to man and woman in their essential nature according to how He created them. That's where Genesis 2 takes us. Uh, let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Genesis 2, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man and formed him out of the ground. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God's created Adam. Adam is ruler uh, over this garden temple. Uh, this kingdom, he has dominion over it, and all of that is before the woman is even created. So male headship isn't something that comes after the fall. It exists before the fall, as we'll continue to see here. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And immediately, many women, especially in our day and age, uh, will say, helper, oh, that sounds sexist. It's demeaning to call a woman a helper. Not understanding or realizing that the Hebrew word for helper there is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity is called a helper. Uh, It is not a demeaning term. It is a glorious term. And if anybody's being insulted with the term, it's the man who God looks at him and goes, this guy isn't going to make it alone. He needs a helper. Uh, if anybody is, is receiving um, a, a backhanded insult, it, it's, it's the man. Case in point, I'll give myself as an example before marriage. Uh, if you would have found me before marriage, uh, you would have found me eating the same foods every day. Uh, and one of those would have been tuna straight out of a can. Um, You would have found me wearing the same clothes for multiple days in a row, which would have included a backwards hat, baggy sweatpants, and house shoes. Um, I moved out of my home uh, with my family at 18 and moved in and lived for five years with a bunch of roommates, uh, a bunch of other guys, and we found most of our furniture in dumpsters. Um, We... uh, I had back issues, and so I got rid of my bed. I slept on the floor, um, and uh, our walls were empty, except for a few posters that had holes in them from knife-throwing competitions in our kitchen. Okay? No lie on any of this, and I could go on and on. I won't. Um, and, And I know all men aren't like, you know, many men are more civilized than I was, but I would argue that's probably because some woman along the way helped you. And, um, and God is wise to not leave the world with just men. It says, verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam's acting as a, a leader of humanity, naming the animals, he names the woman, he names himself man. 
Uh, Additionally, I'll point out in chapter 5, verse 2, it says, God created man, referring to both man and woman at this point, and he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And And I point that out because mankind is what it's termed, never womankind. And any time in Scripture referring to both genders, you either have a gender-neutral term or you have a term that carries a male overtone because man was made the representative head over all creation. Uh, verse 20, The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed of its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said and sang, as we talked about a few weeks ago, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because, and this is important, she was taken out of man. And we know that's important, that little phrase, because Paul picks it up again in 1 Corinthians 11, and says this, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Which, uh, again, shows that God isn't random with how He makes gender distinctions. Um... These role distinctions are rooted in the nature of man created first and then woman from man. That's an original design feature. And we're not embarrassed by it because the Bible always balances these things out in right ways. It doesn't mean that men are superior to women. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11.3, we see uh, a really important verse. And I'm going to just take a pause on this verse for a second and ask you some questions. So, Um, let me just take, there's three phrases in here. And just see if we agree with these. The head of every man is Christ. Do we agree with that? Head of every man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. Do we agree with that? Yes. Would we agree with what might fit in between those two phrases in the verse? The head of every wife is her husband. That's how Paul argues it. Um, This is deeply Trinitarian, as I argued the first week. Uh, It isn't that women are of less importance or less glory. It's that they're the last of all created beings. And that doesn't mean they're last in importance. It means that their glory, equal to man's glory, is mediated through who was created before them, namely man. So there's equal glory, but it is a mediated glory uh, as... Christ's glory is a mediated glory, and the Spirit's as well. Again, a lot of people get mad about these things, and I, I, I really think that they think these things are insulting because they, don't, they really don't understand what's being said. Um, if anything, this verse is showing the deep value of, of, uh, of womanhood. For example, where was the woman made from the man? What did God use? What body part? Was she taken from his foot to be trampled on by him? No. Was she taken from his head to rule over him? No. She was taken from his side to imply he is to love her, to care for her, to nourish and protect her. 
That's a paraphrase from Matthew Henry, who talked of this many, many years ago. I think it's significant that God made Eve from a rib close to Adam's heart, implying that this is no, in, in no way is he to neglect this woman. She is, she is of him, and she is very close to his heart. Uh, he is to have a Christ-like type of care for her. So, all of this, is. here's what I'm saying, this is all before the fall. There's no sin in the world. There's no flaw in the design. There's nothing wrong with what God has done here. Adam, the male, was leader and head. Uh, Eve, the female, was made from him and for him, enjoying his leadership. That's a flawless design. To argue with that is to argue about something in Genesis 2 before there was any sin. Um, so, so we have this. Uh, already. However, uh, it did not stay that way long. By Genesis 3, this is already broken. This is already being ruined. And so here's what I want to look at, and this is where we'll linger is the second point. Gender roles after the fall, after sin. So what God designed perfect to work in perfectly harmonious, complementary ways uh, is now broken by sin. And verses 1 through 8 shows the the initial sin, verse 9 through 13, the trial, and verse 14 through 19, the judgment and curses. I want to walk through each of those. Starting in verse 1, Genesis 3, listen uh, to what it says. Uh, well, let me paraphrase this first part because this is important. It's, it begins with the serpent coming to who? To Eve. Not to Adam. And you go, well, that's, uh, what's the point? Well, there is a point. Because in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says this, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Who was deceived first actually is an important theological point for the New Testament church. Let's, let's look at this and understand why. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now here, here's what we need to understand. God never told Eve about the forbidden fruit. He never told Eve that directly. He told Adam that. And Adam was to tell his wife. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, May we eat of the of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Listen to what she inserts. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God did not say that. God did not say you should not touch it. So she either inserted that herself and added something herself, or Adam didn't teach her wrong. We don't know. Maybe she heard him wrong. But the point is that God did not say you shall not touch that tree, but you shall not eat from it. And so she's making God's commands more narrow than he originally gave. Uh, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Listen, who was with her? 
standing right there, and he ate. Now there's two options here. Option one, Adam and Eve fell together. They fell together. I think I said this a few weeks ago. I've studied this a lot over the years. Um, A lot of theologians teach this. It is a likely interpretation. The fall happened simultaneously. They're both chewing on the fruit at the same time. It just puts them together. It's possible. It's also possible, option two, that Eve sinned first. Why we would say this is how Genesis 3 reads, but also 1 Timothy 2, that the man was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That could imply, and many would say it does, that Eve sinned first. Here's what, it, here's what we can't say. We can't say Adam sinned first. The text does not allow for that. We can't say that Adam sinned first by his passivity or something like that. Either they fell together or she was deceived and sinned first. Uh, but we cannot say that Adam sinned first. Now we're going to keep reading because that will become important in just a moment. Genesis 3 verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The, the problem behind all problems right there hid themselves from God. They had sinned, and now the guilt from sin is affecting them. Uh, you all know, and I don't have time to build this out, but we've studied this many, many times. Uh, the, the original sin and how the New Testament talks about that. Let me just give us one or two verses. 1 Corinthians 15.22 In Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. His guilt has been imputed to or accredited to us so that when He bit the fruit, we bit the fruit. When He sinned, we sinned. When He fell, we fell with Him. I've argued this many times. I think it's clear in 1 Corinthians 15. You can read that later. uh, Romans 5 as well. As sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, it wasn't just Adam's sin. We play a part in this as well. Listen to how it goes. So death spread to all men because all sinned. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. And so the gospel hinges on not just the fall of humankind or the fall of woman, but the fall of man, Adam. It uses the name Adam repeatedly, and there's something significant about male failure in sin, namely the first one. Um, Look at verse 9. The Lord God called to who? Who does God go searching for after the fall? The woman who possibly ate first? No. The man and said to him, where are you? And I, I can't think of a cultural evil in our generation that God could not rightly say to the men, where are you? With abortion, is it not the root problem 
the absence of men. Sex trafficking is not the root problem, the absence of men. With crime and violence, I mean, we have the statistics, the majority of problems come back to fatherless homes. There are are large segments of society where fatherlessness is a massive problem, resulting in much crime and violence. With feminism and all the anger and rage, is it not most of it fueled by a failure from men? With deviant forms of sexuality, even LGBT issues, most of those come back to not teaching our young boys and young girls the beauty and glory of marriage and sexuality and gender and all these things. And that rests on the failure of men. And we could get into divorce rates, we could get into issues in the military, 10,000 other cultural evils that primarily fall at the feet of the men. It's not that women aren't sinners, it's not that they bear no responsibility or guilt, but at the end of the day, when sin enters the world, God always comes to man and says, where are you? By nature of design, men will stand before God like Adam in the garden, and He will call us to account. And there will be things we are held accountable for that women are not. Where are you, priest? of my garden temple, God said to Adam, given charge to keep it holy and pure. Where are you, man responsible to protect Eve from the serpent? Where are you, leader and head of humanity, who should have crushed the head of the serpent when it came into God's garden temple, but instead let the serpent come and deceive And lure his wife off into sin and destroy all that God entrusted to his care. Where are you? Adam. Sons of Adam. You see what God's doing here? He's acting as judge. He's coming to Adam as judge. And he asks a series of questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, but to give a fair legal trial before passing judgment. Adam is the first on trial. God asks a series of questions to him, starting, let's look at verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam does what most men do. Blames his wife. The woman. Or better to say, men do what Adam does. Blames the woman. Which is really a blaming of God. Which is really a blaming of God. Look at how he says it. The woman you gave me. As if to say, not only is it the woman's fault, but it's your fault that you gave me this sinful woman. Hear what he says behind what he says. And then Eve, of course, follows Adam's terrible leadership in verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And now she blames the serpent. And this is very relevant to marriage because every marriage counselor will tell you this is meeting number one in most marriage counseling. 
blame shifting, blame shifting, blame shifting, blame shifting. I remember as a as a uh, a young pastor and sitting in um, uh, counseling sessions with husbands and wives, and you know uh, the wife would start saying all this stuff wrong with the husband. He's doing this. He's not doing this. He's failing at this. He isn't. And I'm, I would just be sitting there being like, "Yeah, he he is the problem." And then, uh, or and then the other would go and 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 start listing off all of their spouses' uh, problems, and I would be like, you know what? They are the problem. Like I agree. This, is... and and then I would I would have to catch myself and back up and say, wait a second, guys, we're back in the garden. We're in Genesis three again. Look, at, we're just blaming. Uh, me and uh, I've shared this many times, even publicly, that Priscilla and I hit a, a rough spot eight years into our marriage because we got really good at something. We got good at finding the fault in the other, and we struggled to see it in ourselves. We're really good at blaming uh, the other, and marriages can't move forward when we follow in this Adam and Eve pattern. It, it, it is not a small thing in marriage to be able to see our sin. Um, when we first started the church, the book that we would use for marriage counseling and pre-marriage counseling was called When Sinners Say I Do. We used that for a number of years. Uh, when Sinners Say I Do. A book that we use now, it's got a different title now. It's called Marriage. I forget the exact title. Um, but What Did You Expect is the title of it, or, or, or the former title of it. And both of these books are very helpful for marriages and pre-marriage counseling because they deal with not only are you a sinner, but you're about to be married to a sinner or, or are married to a sinner, and that's the root issue here. And, and the Bible says a lot to us about being married to someone after the fall. And you say, how hard could it be to be married to a sinner? I mean, certainly nobody who's married says that, but um, some... Some may say that. It sounds easier than it is. You say, why is being married to a sinner not easy? <clears throat> well, it's not just sin in general. It's these three curses that God is about to speak to the serpent, to the man, and to the woman. And this is very important that we understand these three curses because they greatly affect our marriages now. Let's start with the curse on the serpent. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, that is the offspring of Satan, and her offspring, that would be the offspring of God. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now there is so much to unpack there, and I am not going to attempt to unpack hardly any of that. Simply just point out, this is why Cain killed Abel in the next chapter. Uh, this is why Joseph's brothers plotted after him to kill him. This is why Saul hated and sought after David. To kill him. Enmity, enmity between the seed of the serpent and, and the seed of the godly. This is why Israel was hated by Egypt and all the pagan nations. The satanic seed versus the godly seed. 
This is why Pharaoh tried to kill baby Moses, and a different Pharaoh later tried to kill baby Jesus. This is why Muslims and Hindus and many religions aren't persecuted like Christians or hated like Christians. Because God has put all against the seed of the woman. And guys, I bring this up because this is why unequally yoked marriages are so hard. Because that enmity exists within the covenant context. It's very hard. But you know what? The same hope that there is for the unequally yoked marriage is the same hope for the the one with two believers, the seed of the woman that would come later out of Eve, not Adam, the Savior of mankind, but the seed of the woman, the, the future Adam, the greater Adam, the Christ child that would come from Mary who would finally crush the head of the serpent. That's the hope of all marriages. And it's prophesied here in verse 15. Look at verse 16. This is the curse and judgment on the woman. We need to take a few minutes on this. God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Here's another way to translate that, according to one scholar. I will surely expand your pain in, and your pregnancy, so it, it'll last nine months, and in pain you will bear children. So not only the pain of delivery is a part of the curse, but the whole of that nine months leading up to it and any discomforts also is part of that curse. And then this look at the next phrase. I have to spend a moment on this because this gets largely missed. Your desires shall be contrary or against your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now there's two clauses there. In that sentence, in the last part of that sentence, the wife's tendency will be to stand against her husband's leadership. Her desire will be contrary to him. And then the back end of that, at the very end, it says the husband's proper response to the wife's action is he shall rule over her. That is not allow her to do what Adam allowed his wife to do, which led to all the sin and destruction. Now the Hebrew term here, let me pick this apart for a minute, the the word desire there, that word desire only shows up three times in the Bible. Um, Two of those are in Genesis 1, or I'm sorry, Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, and we're meant to notice them because they come so close together. So in Genesis 3.16, a wife's desire is contrary to her husband. Genesis 4.7, the sin's desire is contrary to Cain. That's important that these are a chapter apart and there's already a matching parallel clauses as if these two passages are related in some way and help interpret each other. To Cain, God declared, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you or it's against you in its desire and you shall or must rule over it. You hear that? Sin's desire toward Cain was evil, like a thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy, to overpower him, to rule him, and he's told, you must rule over it. 
That's the proper response from Cain toward the sin that sought to rule over him. Read the parallel statement in Genesis 3.16. To the woman, God says, your desire will be against your husband or to rule over your husband. That's what will happen, not what should happen, but what will happen as a result of the fall. And your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he must rule over that desire. I do believe we're to read these as parallel statements and they help us interpret each other. It's Again, it's not a prediction of what Cain will do in chapter 4, but a declaration of what he should do when faced with sin's negative attempt to usurp. Cain should rule over his sin. Adam should rule over his wife rightly, appropriately, when she seeks to usurp his God-given headship. Now, pause. <laughs> um, pastor? Sure you want to go here? Uh, this isn't going to go well when you say this to men. Well, first of all, I'm not saying it to men. Text is saying it. I'll, I'll quote Vody Bauckham here. I don't write the mail. I deliver it. Um, I didn't come up with this. I'm just repeating what is here in the verse. Second, yes, many men will abuse this passage. And have. Before I said anything right now. Okay. Uh, and there's two abuses. There's Adam-like abuses where the man allows the wife to rule over him, which again, we can go back to Genesis 3 again and see how that plays out. That's not a good option for woman or man or anyone. And there's Lamech-like abuses. Genesis 4.23. Lamech is the first of the aggressive and abusive men toward their wives. Lamech-like husbands have filled humanity, have filled the history of humanity, angry, domineering, Lamech-like men who've ruled and mistreated women. We're all very aware of these. The church condemns those type men. The culture condemns those type men. Often without condemning the Adam-like men. See, here, here's, I actually think, For the church, the bigger problem is not Lamech-like aggressors. I don't think those are the, the husbands ruining the church. I think in the church, the bigger problem is Adam-like, passive men. I believe that's a greater problem. And for whatever it's worth, I don't believe Genesis 3.16 is calling for Lamech-like or Adam-like leadership. I believe it's calling for Christ-like rule. And remember from the last two weeks how Christ rules and leads and governs His church? It is always for the good of His bride. Always tenderly. Always with compassion. Always with love. Okay, We're talking about a Christ-like leadership. He, his lead is love. It's gentle. It's patient. It's pure. Please don't forget the last two weeks. Every man is to love and lead his bride as Christ loves and leads his. And toward his bride, there is not an ounce, nothing in his bones that's aggressive or passive. And we're to be like that, brothers. 
you know, I, I know wives, many would say, well, if I had a more Christ-like husband, I wouldn't try to control him so much. But here's what I would say. I don't believe you. Because you do have a Christ-like husband. And you struggle to submit to him. Christ is a perfect leader. But there isn't a woman in here that perfectly submits to Christ. Do you see? But our hus husbands, every husband in this room is a problem for their wife and makes it difficult. But I think the command stands. There's others who would say feminism exists because of passive atoms and aggressive Lamecs. I don't think the problem of feminism is related to just the failure of imperfect men. I think it comes back to this curse. I think it largely comes back to this curse because the world was given a perfect man and he was killed and he's still disregarded. This curse runs very deep and it doesn't just start when a woman gets married. We understand this. Little girls can learn at a very early age how to manipulate their fathers, which seems very cute, but it's not always innocent. Teenage girls can learn how to control and manipulate boys with emotions and clothing and flirting. Many unmarried women can learn to use their bodies to gain authority and control over men. And so I know feminism, yes, is a result of men, males' failures to some extent, but there is, there is some deep-seated things that are related to nature and this curse that are going on. And so the woman's curse is not just that she has a fallen, sinful husband. That is certainly a challenge. But the woman's curse is that her desire, because of the fall, is to rule over that husband. And, I, and <laughs> brothers, we think we're such a blessing to our wives. We do one good thing, and we're patting ourselves on the back for a week. You know, <laughs> we don't realize the hundred other things we do to to uh, rem remind her of this curse. And, and so, uh, women know that the curse that is at work in you is happening when you're struggling to submit to an imperfect man and know that the Spirit of God is at work in, when, in you when you are finding it possible to honor Him. To honor Him. Let me go to the men. We'll end with the curse on the man. We're going to come back and study men next week, so I won't say as much about this now. Look how his curse starts. Verse 17, and actually, I would expect it to read like this. This is what I, coming at this verse, I would expect it to read like this. Because you ate from the tree I commanded you not to eat, cursed are you. That's how you would think it would read. Listen to how it actually reads. Verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, Adam's sin wasn't merely that he ate the fruit. It was that he ate the fruit at the command or at the voice of his wife. Obeying her voice instead of God's voice. Fearing her disapproval rather than fearing God's. That's what God says in verse 17. And notice God doesn't actually curse the man. 
He, he curses the ground from which Adam was created and must have dominion. You know, it's interesting. People point this out. I think it's a legitimate thing to point out in the text. The woman was made from the man and therefore her curse is related to the man and related to offspring. The man was made from the earth and now his curse is related to his work in the earth. In pain, it says, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So he will return to the ground in which he was made. And many men feel the effects of this curse. It drives men into depression. It drives men into discouragement, into anger, leading them to, to act out sinfully. The curse pushes some toward passivity and laziness that results to all sorts of addictions and problems and, and, and all sorts of destruction. It, the curse pushes others toward aggression and anger and ambition that will trample on anyone who gets in their way. And what... Guys, even, in the, even among the godliest Christians here, you can't fully avoid this. Brother, you, you, you can't fully avoid the futility of your work. The frustration of work, the difficulty of work. Godliest wives in this room, you can't avoid the pain of childbearing. And you can't avoid the difficulty of not trying to rule over your husband. These things can't be fully avoided, this side of glory. But, some actually do avoid them to some extent. What do I mean? Well, I've talked to couples who have said, uh, we've never argued and our marriage is easy. I've actually had people say that to me. Which means one of two things to me when I hear that. Uh, Either you're fully sanctified and perfect already. That's amazing that I met someone like that. Or you haven't been married. Okay, that's, one, that's an option. Or uh, you aren't doing marriage right. You say, what do you mean by not doing marriage right? I mean, there are, there are couples who avoid aspects of the curse. How is a husband going to say, I don't feel the effects of the curse on work. There's no futility in anything I do. The only way you might feel that is if you put it on your wife. And she has to bear that. And so yeah, maybe you don't feel the weight of it. How many women in our day say, I don't feel any pain in childbearing. Because I don't want kids. How many married couples say, we don't struggle with this whole headship submission thing because we don't agree with it. It doesn't work for our marriage. We've actually found what works best for us. So you can avoid aspects of the difficulty of this by reinventing your own marriage according to your own rules, according to your own desires. It's possible to avoid aspects of this curse. We can say a lot of things about marriages like that, but here's what I would say about them. They're very non-Christian. They don't have the aroma of a Christian 
marriage because a Christian marriage, as we saw the last two weeks, has a distinctiveness to it that you look at the husband and you go, he isn't Christ, but he's trying. And, and the wife, she isn't like the church, but that's her aim. There's a distinctiveness there. And th- this is the other Christian aspect. The difficulty of being a godly husband and being a godly wife requires continual death to self. It is very hard to be a godly wife. It is very hard to be a godly man. It requires death. You actually have to die to yourself. Which, in Christian terms, is a really good thing. John 12 doesn't get brought up in a lot of marriage sermons, but I'll read it. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You want a fruitful marriage? There's got to be death to self. At many, many, I mean daily, death to self in the path of husbandry and in the path of being a godly wife. It is the, the aroma of Christian marriages. It beautifies marriages. I wanna, I'm going to just stop at this point for today. We'll come back to this next week and look at the husband and then the wife after that. I hope the Lord will help you see there's beauty here. There's joy here. There's freedom here. This is not restrictive. This is God's plan for us. It's His design for marriage. It is where life and liberation happens in the context of marriage. It's how Christ and the church get displayed and in through our marriages. Amen? May the Lord help us. May the Lord help us. Uh, Some of that help, I I think, will come through the table uh, this morning. When we come to take the Lord's Supper after a sermon, sometimes you just need to confess sin again. Right? You just come, you confess sin and remember Christ has done for you. Others of us need to come here and just worship the Lord for His goodness, remembering the Gospel and all that Christ has done for us. Um, If you're new, we uh, approach this table. We believe the table, as laid out in Scripture, is for those who have received Christ by faith and who have been baptized. And so if that is you, please join us. Uh, If you'll be refraining, you can find in your bulletin uh, some meaningful prayers that you can pray uh, during this time. Father, Lord, we love You because You first loved us. Lord, we believe Your Word because the only other option is to believe ourselves or the voice of the enemy. Lord, help us to be people who rejoice in every word You've spoken in Your Word. Lord, we pray that You would strengthen our resolve to pursue Christ-like leadership. We pray You would put in us a resolve to embrace all that Your Word gives us regarding marriage. Lord, as we come to the table, help us to remember how Your Son pursued a bride and won her with His blood, with His grace. And Lord, we pray that You'd strengthen us by that grace as we come to the table. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.